Welcome to Living Free Today, a ministry of Cornerstone Fellowship in San Lorenzo, California. These podcasts are the weekly sermons of Dr. Michael L. Wilson. Please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, starting in 17. Paul has given various instructions to the church at Philippi. And in 17 through 21, he gives a a dichotomy, if you will, a difference between two types of people. And he gives instructions as to how the people at the Church of Philippi are supposed to consider themselves. And he starts in 17 by saying, Brothers, when he uses the phrase brothers or beloved, that means this is addressed to Christians. This is not an evangelical letter. This is a letter of instruction for those who know Jesus Christ, who have given their lives over to Jesus Christ. And so in that way, it is very Christian-specific teaching. A non-Christian reading this cannot take what it says as true about them. Christians can. He says, join in imitating me and open your eyes to those who walk according to the example you have set in us. And so he is saying, if you are a believer, you need to be able to find somebody, to look to somebody as an example, to say, this is somebody I'm going to follow. Now, when we think of examples in the Bible... You have Jesus Christ, who's the full package. If you want an example of someone who prays, Jesus Christ. If you want somebody who is an example of compassion, Jesus Christ. An example of proper treatment of Scripture, Jesus Christ. But God has set up through the centuries various Christians that we can look to saying, well, I want to be a better studier of the Bible. That person is a good studier of the Bible. I will use them as an example. I mean, even ask them how they do it. And so we will have multiple people with multiple aspects of the Christian life that we look to as an example. Paul, through the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, was able to set himself up saying that he is doing his best to do everything right. If you just follow him, you're well along the way. And then as people get more mature, of course, Paul would point them toward Jesus Christ. The other side of this coin is that as I am going through the Christian life, I need to be able to be an example to the Christians that are around me. I not only look for people to follow and to emulate in the Christian life, but 
I need to be living in such a way that people can follow me and look to me. If you go home today and you look in the mirror and say, I don't want anybody to follow me, then that's an issue with the Christian life you are living. Hopefully you can say, I don't want anybody to follow me because of X. And then you can work on X and you can work on Y and you can work on Z so that you don't walk around saying, please follow me. You just come to church and you make yourself available. You are open about your Christian life so that people can follow you. John MacArthur says, A Christian must live a life worthy of the gospel, which means to live as Christ lived. So if my goal is to live as Christ lived, and I can look through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I can say, how did Christ live? And I can read it. I can look at it. And I can see where my life doesn't match. And if there's glaring, obvious things, then you can work on them and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to strengthen you. We need to not only be following solid Christians, but we need to be able to have solid Christians follow us. Second thing that they do as Christians, that you do as Christians, it says, for many of you, in verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. And so the... The two sorts of people that Paul is talking about, he is talking about heavenly citizens. If you are a Christian, you are a heavenly citizen. If you are against Christ, you are an enemy of the cross. Now, when you read through this and you say, what is enemy of the cross? I can read through the Bible and say, Oh, well, way up there is talking about sufferings and resurrection. I can get a concordance. A concordance is an invaluable tool for a Christian. It lists every word and phrase in the Bible and where it exists in the Bible. And so if you want to see what the Bible says about suffering, you can look in a concordance about suffering and read the 300 or so places that the word suffering appears and read how it's used and, and get an idea of how the Bible uses the word suffering. If you look in a concordance and find enemy of the cross, you will find one occurrence, and that's here. Paul made up a word. We believe when he said enemy of the cross, it is a single word. In Greek, it is a cross Hater. It is a cross fighter, and he kind of jams some words together, and this is the only place. And so, if you get on the old Google machine, you know, and you type in enemy of the cross, everything you see will point to Philippians 3:18. And so, we have to kind of build a theology of what is Paul talking about? What does he mean, enemy of the cross? 
First thing we have to decide is, what does it mean when he says the cross? Well, as Christians, we understand the cross. We have cross up here. We wear cross jewelry. The cross is where Christ died for our sins. And so the theology of the cross is that that's where all the action happened for salvation. That's where all the heavy lifting occurred for salvation. Yes, Jesus lived a perfect life. That did not save you. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. That did not save you. Christ died on the cross. That was the saving action of Christ to get you into heaven, the cross. And so why do we need the cross? Well, we need the cross because as the gospel says, if you say, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is that God has a standard. I violate that standard by sinning. I am committing treason against God. I am committing great crimes against God called sin when I sin against God's commands. God says, fix it, as he did in the Old Testament. And so I try. I do sacrifices. I, I follow rules. I make up rules. And every time I try to fix it myself, I cannot. I am unable to save myself in every way possible. You cannot come up with a way where anybody in relationship to God can save themselves. And so God, seeing our condition, sent his son to die, to take our sin on him such that he became sin for us is a biblical phrase. He became sin. He died with our sin on him. You say, why did Christ have to die? He had to die because sinners die. And so he took our sin. He died. He rose victorious, in essence, leaving our sin in the grave. And so if you Look at that. Let's say you're, you're talking to somebody about religion and they say, well, sin doesn't matter to God. Okay? That's a big thing today, that God is love. It's very universalist. God is love. He will save everybody. Sins are just mistakes. I hear that a lot. We do not need to worry about our sin because everybody does it. God's going to go, ah, that's okay, come on into heaven. That is an enemy of the cross because they are denying what the cross did. If you say anything counter to the theology of the cross, you are an enemy of the cross. If you uh, degrade Christ as the Son of God, you are an enemy of the cross. If you minimize sin, you are an enemy of the cross. If you, if you uh, minimize or deny eternal life on the other side of the cross in heaven, you are an enemy of the cross. And so, as I said before, Paul is talking to Christians in a church. Now, we could, I could just turn on the TV and say, oh, enemy of the cross, enemy of the cross, enemy of the cross. It's, in the world, it is easy. You can point to 10 out of 10, enemy of the cross, because the world doesn't take any of this seriously. But Paul is talking to people 
who are in the church. And so that's why he says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears. He is saying there are people in the Philippian church who have gotten so sideways in their theology that they can now be considered unsaved or enemies of the cross. The, the only example where we know what they did was in First and Second Timothy, you have Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus and Alexander were elders in a church, okay, in Ephesus. And they were preaching that the resurrection had already happened and you've been left behind. And so they would get up on Sunday morning and they would basically mourn with the people and grieve with the people because God left them behind. And they didn't have movies like Left Behind or anything like that to get a mindset, they just felt God had rejected them. That was their teaching. They were enemies of the cross because if you read through any part of the New Testament, if you are truly saved, you're not going to be left behind. And if you read Revelation, it says that the whole world is going to see the second coming of Jesus Christ. You're not going to be able to miss it, whether it is, you know, People now speculate, well, that now it can be on everybody's phone or something like that. You know, back in the time of Paul, it was like scratching your head. How can everybody in the, you know, but now we figure that out, perhaps. That Jesus is going to come again and everybody's going to see it. And nobody is going to sit there saying, I wonder if Jesus Christ came back. Nobody is going to say, I wonder if this happened or if I'm, you know left behind. And so these people, Hymenaeus and Alexander and these people in Philippi and various other people in the New Testament are enemies of the cross because they so corrupt the message of Jesus Christ. And then Paul gives four statements or attributes about them. It says in 19, for their end is destruction. Okay, for a Christian, our end is not destruction. Destruction is hell. Destruction is eternal torment. People who deny Christ or who corrupt Christ, their end, perhaps not today, usually not today, but their end is going to be eternity without God. They so corrupted the message of God, God is going to say, fine. For eternity you will be without me, and that's the lake of fire, and that is hell, and that is guaranteed from Scripture. Okay, At the end of time, the rules are not going to change. At the end of time, God is not going to say, ah, your sin doesn't matter, come on into heaven. There will be a division between people who accepted Christ in this life and people who are enemies of the cross in this life. And those are destruction. If you're a Christian, your end is glory. Your end is the wedding feast. Your end is heaven. Anything but destruction. It's a good thing. You have good versus bad. And it says, second, uh, their God is their belly. Okay, what this means is 
they have appetites, okay? Now, especially on, on Sundays, it's very easy to let your mind wander as to what you're having for lunch today because you may be a little hungry, okay, as the service goes on. That's fine. Appetite for normal food is good, but you can have appetites for money. We call that greed. You can have appetite for all sorts of illicit, immoral relationships. You can have appetites for power. You can have appetites for nice cars or nice houses, for uh, power over other people. You can have desires inside you, and everybody has this potential to have a desire inside them for something to advance themselves, to put other people down. And it is this sort of appetite that, that Paul says, their God, little g God, is their belly. They're actually worshiping their desires. They're worshiping their addiction. They're worshiping everything that is within them that advances themselves. And if I am constantly focused on myself and not on the things of God, then my end is going to be destruction. It sa he says, their glory is their shame. The idea of what do you put out to advance yourself? What sort of flag do you wave? What sort of parades do you participate in? If we look at the world, the things that they're proud of are downright shameful. And what Paul is saying, things that they should be shamed of, ashamed of, they are raising up and saying, hey, look at me. Isn't this great? And we kind of scratch our head and say, no, that's shameful. And if that comes into the church, if that comes into the leadership of a church, then it is, you know, that church is, is heading for destruction because you have people doing strange and bizarre non-Christian behavior in the church and saying, aren't I great? Isn't that wonderful? Follow me. Be, I'll be your example. And you shake your head saying, that is the weirdest example I've ever seen. And you should be ashamed of that. And that's because, as it says in the end of 19, their minds are set on earthly or worldly things. We have the option. We have the... So we're living in the world, but we're not of the world. And we have choices on what we consider valuable. We have choices on what we consider good and something to go after. And if I'm constantly going after worldly things, things like chasing after wealth, chasing after power, chasing after two million followers on whatever thing they're doing these days that you follow people on. These, the look at me so that I can get more power and more money and I can have more eyes looking at me is a worldly thing while if I am 
a citizen of heaven, as it says in 20, if I am a citizen of heaven, I advance toward heavenly things. And so in verse 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven. And if you get out your concordance, and after you're done looking enemy of the cross, you look up heavenly citizen, citizen of heaven. This is the only place you find it. It is a concept, and immediately you kind of have a sense of what it is, but to put these words together in this order, this is it. And so we have to look and say, well, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Now, we're kind of confused in America as to what a citizen is. We want to be very international. We want to be very open to ideas of other countries. But if you look back in Paul's day when he wrote this, you were either a Roman citizen or you were dirt. That's how it was understood when the Romans ruled the world. You had to be a Roman citizen. You could either be born into it or you could buy it with cash or you could serve in the military for 25 years and they would gift you a citizenry into the Roman Empire. And if you were a Roman citizen, you had certain privileges. They tried to beat Paul, okay, in the book of Acts. And he said, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. And according to the law of the day, it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen. And so that is just one of the many things that you could participate in as a Roman citizen, you definitely had more abilities. You had more privileges as a Roman citizen. If you're a Roman citizen, you spoke the language of the day, which was Latin. For most of the time, Paul probably definitely knew Hebrew because he was a Jew, probably knew Aramaic, the street language, probably knew, knew Greek because that was the language of the marketplace and international trade, and he probably knew Latin because he had to interact with people as a Roman citizen. All the Roman laws were written in Latin, and so he had to be able to read those, which I'm sure he did. And so if you belong as a citizen to a place, you understand the rules of that place, the language of that place, the idioms of that place. Back when I worked at Microsoft, they sent me to Amsterdam, and I met a person from America who was working in Amsterdam, and he met an Amsterdam lady and fell in love and wanted to get married. And the government swooped down and said, wait a minute, we don't want you taking our beautiful women away you need to live in Holland for two years after you're married. We won't let you get married until you pass a test on the Netherlands history, especially World War II history, because they were very important in that conflict. And you needed to pass a language test. You needed to be able to speak their language before you could marry one of their citizens. 
What was he doing? He was becoming a citizen of the Netherlands. He was going to have dual citizenship, America and the Netherlands. But he needed to know their rules, their laws, their language, their culture. So if I'm a heavenly citizen, I have dual citizenship. I'm a citizen of earth, but I'm also a citizen of heaven. And if I'm a citizen of heaven, there are certain things that they do as citizens of heaven. There are rules, there are practices, there is a certain way to speak. And this is all described, especially in the New Testament, but throughout the whole Bible, how a heavenly citizen needs to act. And so I need to go home and look in the mirror and say, am I functioning like a heavenly citizen? Then you may ask yourself, what does a heavenly citizen work, look like? Well, then you need to get in your Bible and you need to see how Jesus lived and how Paul lived and how God talked to people in the Old Testament and you get a sense that a heavenly citizen behaves this way, talks this way, has this priority, has these things to do, takes up their time doing these things. That is what a heavenly citizen does. And we do that because once you're saved, you gain that citizenship. So then we need to live up to it. This person in Amsterdam was trying to become a citizen of that country so that he could impress the love of his life and that she would love him all the more and they would live happily ever after. We don't do it to impress God. We do it to live up to what God has already gotten to. John MacArthur says one big part of being a heavenly citizen is our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in money. It is not in politics. We don't believe that if this person gets elected or that person loses an election, our life will be grand. That is a worldly hope. We do not have worldly hope. We have hope in God. We have hope in Christ. James Boyce says, the believer's citizenship in heaven gives him a hope and a joy that transcends all the trials of this life. And it says in 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from our heavenly citizenship, we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to object subject all things to himself. So we're not doing this just for fun. We're doing this because Jesus Christ is going to come back again. When he comes back again, those who have died in Christ will be raised first throughout the New Testament. Those who remain will be raptured, translated, and we will gain new bodies and we will gain New understanding, and the biggest thing of heaven is that sin will be gone, okay? I will not be sinful in my thinking. And so people say, well, I want to imagine what heaven will be like. 
I can't because I can't imagine a life without sin. I can't imagine a life without pain. I can't imagine a life without loss that this world seems to be full of. But that is what our heavenly citizenship means. You become a citizen of heaven so that as you are living as a citizen of heaven, you are waiting for Jesus Christ to come back because you know when Jesus Christ comes back, he will subject all things to himself and he will make all things right. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, we just praise you that all this will end someday and that as citizens of heaven, we will be with you for all eternity with a new body that was like Christ's body when he rose from the dead. And we know that God can do this because Christ has subjected all things under himself. Lord, we praise you for that and pray that you would instill that hope in us from this day forth. We ask this in the blood of Christ. Amen. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 180 Llewellyn Boulevard, San Lorenzo, California. Our Sunday morning service is at 1045 a.m. Our website is livingfreetoday.org and our phone number is 510-278-2622. May God continue to bless you as you serve your King. God bless.